This morning, I want to be preaching on the horns of the altar, but before I do, I, I want to provide context. First uh, Kings chapter 1 uh, is, um, you know, we started off with Adonijah was him and all the people were with him trembled and, and were afraid and everyone went their own way. Why? Why, were, why was everybody afraid? Why did everybody go their own way? So King David was about to die. And there was some real concern King David might even die today, tomorrow, the next couple days. It was like he's close to death. King David's son, whose name is Solomon, was supposed to take the throne after David died. Adonijah was another one of David's sons. Adonijah was Solomon's brother. And Adonijah waited until the word came that his dad was almost at death, bedridden. And Adonijah called together a bunch of the nobles. He got Joab, who Joab was like the head of the, the commander of the army. And they got together and they all did an illegal, uh, uh, not rightful um, <clears throat> ceremony where Adonijah was named king over Israel. And that way, as soon as his dad died... He would say, I'm king. I was already anointed king. The priest already prayed over me. I've already been established by the commander. And he was probably going to kill his brother Solomon. Well, if you, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, you'll know that David had a real close friend who was a prophet. His name was Nathan. And Nathan always had David's best interest at heart, even when he had to tell him the hard things. Nathan hears about it. Nathan gets word to Solomon's mom. And Nathan and Solomon's mom get together and they say, we got to do something about this. Nathan says, here's the plan. I want you to go in, I want you to talk to King David, and I want you to tell him these things. And then, while you're talking to him, I'm going to come in and I'm going to verify, yes, King, it's true. Your younger son, Adonijah, has taken the throne from you. They set up a coronation for him. He's already been anointed king, and you need to know about it. And so they do this, and David finds out. And David says, you know what? The last thing I'm going to do before I die, I'm going to make this right, and I'm going to officially instate Solomon king now. And so David has a much larger group of people come together with his stamp of approval, King David himself, and David establishes once and for all who his son is that's going to be the king. As soon as that happens... Adonijah and all of his people that were behind him get word that they were found out, their secret plan was caught, and the king has already officially and publicly named Solomon king. And so this is why all the people with Adonijah trembled and feared, and everybody fled and went their own way. But it says that Adonijah went to the altar and grabbed the altar, the horns of the altar, and then Adonijah said, I will not let go of this until Solomon promises he's not going to kill me. Why did Adonijah go to the altar? That's what I want to preach on this morning. And before I start preaching about this altar, I want to, use, I want to clarify two words so that you understand some theological terminology this morning. The words shadow and type. These are theological words. You'll actually find the, uh, the word shadow used in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 talking about some of the very things we're going to study. 
And here's what that means theologically. If I'm standing here, some of you that are closest, you can actually see my shadow on the ground. And that shadow proves that there is something physical here. You could actually learn some things about me just by studying my shadow. But the shadow is not the substance. The shadow points to the substance. The Bible calls these things we're about to study, these Old Testament um, ways of God, the Old Testament, the the ways that the uh, tabernacle worked. The Bible calls those shadows that point to Jesus. And another word for that is a type. It's, it's sort of like an example. And so you'll hear it's a type of the cross. It's not the cross, but it's a type that points forward to the cross. I want to clarify those terms. I'm going to use them this morning. I just want you to know when you hear me say it's a shadow or it's a type, now you understand what I'm talking about. So with that said, we are going to study this morning the altar, the horns of the altar. Adonijah is scheming against his own father. He doesn't want his brother to be named king. Instead, Adonijah exalts himself and anoints himself king. Guilty of treason, punishable by death, he is found out. The rightful king is instated and now Adonijah's crimes have come full circle. He does one thing to save himself. He doesn't lie about it. He doesn't blame others. He doesn't come up with some elaborate story. He gets to the altar as fast as possible and grabs a hold of the horns of the altar. Why would he run to the altar? Why would he grab the horn? And more importantly, why would Solomon grant forgiveness to this traitor simply because he went to the altar and wouldn't let go of the horns? This will be our study today. Now, the first thing I want to do is examine the brazen altar because most of us don't even know what I'm talking about right now. I want you to have a physical picture of it. I want you to understand what I'm preaching about this morning. So let's look at the altar itself. This was the brazen altar. And in Old Testament times, this is where sacrifice took place. It was created according to some uh, dimensions and standards that God gave to Moses. It was basically about seven feet by seven feet. It was wood covered in bronze, and there was a fire that burned inside of that, and they would put, when they would do a sacrifice, they would sprinkle blood on that fire, and there were certain portions of the carcass of the sacrifice that they would take and put on that fire, and it would burn up the sacrifice. One of the things God said about this fire was that it was to never go out. So long as the uh, Jewish uh, system was in place, the fire was to never go out. It had to burn day and night. There were priests that had to tend to it continually, taking out ashes, putting on more fire. There was never a time the fire could not go out. It taught two things, very important things. Number one, as the smoke burned day and night, and lifted up towards the heavens, everybody for miles could see smoke billowing towards the sky. And the first important thing that that taught was that day and night, sin was always wrong. It was a reminder of 
God's righteous anger towards sin. That there was never a time that the fire could go out. Never a time that sacrifice could stop. Instead, this this sacrifice must be lifted up to the skies continually because of the sins of mankind. But number two, that while it was true that God's position towards sin did not change, that smoke also reminded people that now, because of sacrifice, they could come into right standing with God, that there was constantly reconciliation with God, and God was constantly, day and night, there to receive His people. It's one of the things that, that was important about this fire that never went out. Now, this was the altar to which Adonijah fled. Let's look at the horns. In Exodus 27 and verse 2, uh, this is one of the instructions on how to make the altar. It says, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. So these horns were actually part of the altar. They weren't animal horns that were added to it. Uh, It is highly likely they were in the shape of an animal horn, but they were literally part of the original carved wood. They had these horns that were part of it, and the whole thing was overlaid with brass. Now, one of the things the horns were used for was tying the sacrifice to the altar. Psalm 118, verse 27, it says, Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now get the picture. It was here that Adonijah fled. It was here that we learn of how Israel treated the horns of the altar. We see that Israel treated the horns of the altar not only as something to tie a sacrifice to while it was Uh, being slain, but also as a place of refuge when you had sinned against a person. That if you could get to the altar, the same place where God granted forgiveness, and you could hold on to those horns and demand forgiveness of the one that you'd wronged. To get to the horns literally meant salvation. It meant forgiveness. It meant a second chance at life. And Adonijah would surely die for his sins against his brother and against the king unless he could get to the horns of the altar understanding now the picture understanding the text there are four things this morning I want to preach about four facts about the brazen altar that we cannot miss number one it is simple that was it get to the altar Once you made it there and sincerely took hold of the horns, you were saved. That's it. It is that simple. A man may not have understood it all. A man may not have understood how God could at all, you know, atone for his sins through the blood of a lamb. A man might not have understood in the mind of God how this was fair, that you could get to the altar and all of a sudden everything would be fine. He might not have understood it all. But make no mistake about it. All he had to do was trust God, be obedient to God's word, get to the altar, and God did the rest of the work. It is that simple. 
And brothers and sisters, the reality is that shadow points forward to Jesus Christ. And it really is that simple. But so many people miss it because we have such a hard time believing it can be so simple as truly just taking hold of Jesus. We think if it was harder, if there was a cost that had to be paid, if it took a long time, if there was a certain order of things, I had to do this and do this and do this, and I had to pay a certain amount and I had to atone for a certain portion of my own wickedness, all of that would seem more fair. All of that would make sense. And there are untold multitudes who will miss heaven because they cannot accept how simple it is. It's just faith in Christ. True faith. The type of faith that grabs a hold of him and says, I won't let go until I'm forgiven. But nonetheless, a simple faith. It really is that simple. The first great lesson from the brazen altar is that the way to forgiveness is simple. Number two, it's public. The second great lesson of the brazen altar is that it is public. In Exodus 40 and verse 6, Moses has given instructions as to where the altar was supposed to be. And here's what it says. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Very specific. He says, here's right where it goes. Let me explain the term before the door. What it literally means is directly in line with the door. That's a better way to translate it in English. When we use the word before something, we think it comes first. As if the altar was out here first and then came the door. That's not what it means. It means literally in line with the door. He says that's where the altar is supposed to be. And I want you to have a picture of it so you kind of get an idea it's fine if you can't read the words on the screen, but I, what, what I want you to see is that the tabernacle was this large um, rectangle area. The entrance is on the bottom part of the screen here in this picture. And when you would come in the entrance, the very first thing right in front of the door, in line with the doors, was the altar. I just want you to get a picture of that. Everything else that took place in the tabernacle happened after you got past the brazen altar. Could you imagine a scenario where when you come in those doors, the very first thing you see right in front of you was an altar of sacrifice. The smoke billowing toward the sky. The blood-stained exterior from all the animals that have been sacrificed there. It was an absolute reminder that we are here to deal with sin. <laughs> That to get beyond here and get to where God is in the Holy of Holies, you first must deal with sin. Now, if the shadow which pointed to the cross was so central to the Old Testament way of worship that it was impossible to mistake it, how much more should the cross of Jesus be the central teaching of the New Testament church? When people come in the doors of a true Christian church, 
Jesus and Jesus alone should be the primary thing that is exalted in that building. The primary thing that is all about. It's all about the cross. Without the cross, we are never getting to God. Without the altar, we are never getting to Him. He must be first and central. Notice the location of it is public. There was no private altar. If you want to get to the altar, you had to march right into the tabernacle in front of everybody who was there and come to the altar publicly. There was no plan for a private altar in God's, in God's kingdom. You couldn't say, well, my stuff's between me and God and I don't think anybody else deserves to know about it. So I'm going to make my own little altar in my own little backyard and just me and God are going to have sacrifice. You couldn't do that. You wanted the forgiveness God had to offer. You had to come and do it God's way. Now listen. The experience is personal. The experience, you could even say, is private. A man didn't have to come when he was coming to, sac- you know, to get right with God and tell everybody what he had needed forgiveness for. He didn't necessarily have to come and hold up a sign and say, here's all my sins. But the very act of coming was a public declaration. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. It is a public declaration. It was a public place. There was no uh, coming you know, on your own terms or doing your own little thing in your own house. The New Testament parallel would be this. When a Christian separates himself from the fellowship of other Christians and declares that he can worship God better at his house or out in the the wide open spaces, he's tried to erect his own altar and attempted to isolate himself from the body of Christ. And in doing so, he disobeys God and the very basic unity of the body of Christ. Jesus said in 1033, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. From Old Testament to New Testament, the principle is this. True followers of Jesus, people who truly come to God and find forgiveness at the altar, are people who do it publicly. It's not a secret. There's no way to do it secretly. You've got to do it publicly. Number three. The third lesson of the brazen altar is that it is obvious. Yes, it's public. But there's also no secret as to what's happening there. A man takes hold of the horns of the altar for one reason and one reason only. He must have forgiveness or else he dies. There was no wondering when somebody came to the altar why they were coming. You might not know what they did, but you knew they needed forgiveness. It is obvious What is happening there? They weren't just coming for fun. They weren't just coming to show up and be with their friends. They they were there for a purpose when they came to the altar. The lesson is this, folks. We've got to be honest with what we need. You've got to stop being embarrassed about where you're at with God. And you have got to come clean. It will be the most freeing thing you've ever done when you quit playing church. When you get honest about what your need is. 
Too many folks play church. They play the church game. Because they have a certain need that they really want God to meet, but they're not willing to be honest about it. We all know how to show up in our church best and act like we've got it all together and we're just here to to learn a little bit more and become a little bit better of people and hopefully God can help us all be happier. we got to stop the game. Let me tell you what we need. We need the forgiveness of sins. And it it was obvious what the altar was about. Sacrifice happened there over and over and over again. Blood was shed. There was no confusion what the brazen altar was about. And folks, we've got to get back to understanding the real need for Christianity, the real need for Jesus. We've lost sight of it. We think, you know, the goal of God is just to make us a little bit happier, a little bit wealthier, give us a little bit more. We've turned Christianity into nothing more than one of multitudes in the world of options for self-help. Listen, you don't need Jesus because you need a better life and more things and more toys and more wealth and more this and more that. Let me tell you why I need Jesus. Because if you don't get saved, you will split hell wide open. You are a sinner and you will answer for your crimes against God. The Bible calls them sins. The anarchy of your own life where you refuse to submit to God and you go your way and you you are your own God and you make your own rules and you live by the dictates of your own heart. You will answer for the crimes of your sin. And if you don't take hold of the horns of the altar and find forgiveness at the cross of Christ, there will come a time that you will split hell wide open. That's why you need Jesus. That's why. That's the gospel, folks. That Jesus came to save us from our sins. You got to be honest with what your need is. There at the brazen altar, we stand exposed in honest and humble recognition that we have sinned and we need forgiveness. I wrote the word in my notes, exposed. We stand exposed at the brazen altar. But when I was writing it this week, here's the word I was going to write. I put that one in there so it would be proper. But this is the way I, this is what I was, I was writing it. This is what I thought. We actually, we stand there at the brazen altar naked. Reminds me of Adam and Eve before the fall. We stand at There is no question. You see somebody standing at the brazen altar, there's one thing everybody knows. Everybody knows that person is guilty of sin. Now, here's the reality. We're all guilty of sin. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, folks. Each and every one of us. But all too often, we don't want to admit it. We're embarrassed. We want to play our game. We want to act like we got it all together. And I'm going to tell you something. You will never truly find the healing that you're looking for, the salvation that you need, the freedom that God offers. You will never truly find it until you learn to just come and be exposed in front of God and and exposed in front of God's people. Just be honest. The Bible talks about confessing your faults to one another. Be honest. 
Stop playing the game. Stop covering it up. If you've got a need, you've got to come clean with God about what your need is. If you've got a need, you've got to come clean with some people in your life about what that need is. Quit trying to hide it. Quit pretending you're coming to the altar for some other reason than you really are. You will find it at the altar. It is obvious what is going on there. The third great lesson, and we must not miss it, is that the very act of coming to the altar was an obvious admission of guilt that a man needed forgiveness for. And number four this morning, the altar, it is power. The altar meant power. And here's where we get to the horns. So biblically, the horn was a divine symbol or a power a symbol of divine power. Consider first of all that in God's creation itself, when animals have horns, they use their horns in battle. They lead with the horn. Even in nature itself, God's creation, the horn represents strength. It represents power. It represents victory in battle. When Samuel anointed David as king. It says not only did Samuel anoint David, but that he poured out a horn filled with oil. That horn symbolizing the power of God. He poured out an entire horn of oil on David. God directed the Israelites to blow the horns to bring down the walls of Jericho. When Hannah was praying in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she prayed about God exalting the horn of his anointed. Jesus said that horns are going to blow at the second coming in Matthew chapter 24. In Habakkuk chapter 3, it talks about horns coming from the Messiah's hands that veil his power. Now there is much more that could be said about this. But let it be said clearly and pointedly, the horn, biblically, represents divine power. Not just power, but divine power. Now we understand the symbolic reason why God said, put the horns on the altar. And it's said on the four corners. There's many who believe, myself included, that that is a reference to God's salvation going to every direction in the earth. North, east, south, west. We know the earth is round, but uh, in prophetic uh, hyperbole, it talks about the four corners of the earth. And so the lesson here is that the power of God to redeem all people of all nations, of all kindreds, of every tongue, it goes in all directions. There is power in the altar. There is power in this brazen altar that represents the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There at the brazen altar was divine power. Power to redeem. Power to atone. Power to save. Power to set free. The man who could simply get there and take hold of the horns, that man must live. I do not know if it's possible for me to get what's in my heart out to you this morning. But I was thinking about it this week. Adonijah knew. That's my only hope. 
I said, I am dead if I don't get to the horns of the altar. I wonder how long he held on to him. It doesn't tell us. Just says he went there, he was holding on him, word gets to Solomon, and they go back and still find him at the altar. And here's the picture that Joplin Emerson had this week as I meditated on this thought. We don't go to the brazen altar anymore. It's a shadow of the cross. We go to the cross. And while there's not a physical cross that we go to, here's the picture that I had in my mind. I had a picture of me at the foot of the cross, Jesus hanging on it, and my arms around the bottom of it locked like this. Like, you will not get me away from this thing. Because it's my only hope. But as I hold on to it, it demands divine power for freedom. It demands that I be alive. It demands that I be granted forgiveness. And so long as I hold on to Jesus, there is nothing that can keep me from God. Grab a hold of it and never let go. There is still power today. It's not a literal brazen altar that sits in the tabernacle that we go to. That altar was a shadow. It was a type that pointed forward. To Jesus Christ. We no longer run to the horns of the altar. But brothers and sisters. We run to the cross. It is simple. It's still public. It's still obvious. It's still powerful. And one touch. One true touch. Will change your life. This is the message of the gospel. In Romans 1.16 it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want to break down uh, verse 18. It says the word of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. In other words, to those who haven't truly been saved, the cross doesn't make a lot of sense. It almost sounds stupid. Like, you can be right with God because somebody else died on a cross 2,000 years ago. It just sounds foolish. That's what it says. It's foolishness. It's foolishness especially when you don't actually understand the reality of sin. And how evil it is and how it separates us from God. There's a coldness sweeping the modern church. And, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not opposed to big churches. I'm not opposed to mega churches. But hear me out of what I'm about to tell you. One of the rules, one of the things they teach, if you're going to be successful and you're going to have a large church, here's one of the rules. Be cautious on how much you preach about the cross and be cautious on how much you preach about the blood. Because if you're going to bring people in, most people don't want to hear about the cross and they don't want to hear about the blood. People are looking for a better life. People are already dealing with enough struggle and they just want to be encouraged and they want to show up, you know, and they, they, want, to, they want to hear a good word and they want to leave and they want to feel better about themselves and they want a little bit of direction for the week. And if you'll do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, you'll build a big church. And you'll find what happens is that in that church, all of a sudden, in, in that in that that way of doing church, it doesn't even make sense to preach about the cross. The cross doesn't actually make a lot of sense if the whole purpose of Christianity is just to make you a little happier and give you a little bit more money and make your life better. I mean, really, it's kind of extreme, isn't it, that 
Jesus would have to shed his blood so you could have a few extra bucks in your wallet? That's extreme, isn't it? And all of a sudden, it doesn't make sense. And so it's like, we're not going to teach about this. We're not going to preach about this. I'm going to say what I said again. I'm going to say again what I said earlier. Jesus did not shed his blood for you and I to simply have better lives here on earth. He shed his blood because there is a literal hell that we need to be rescued from. We needed saved from the wrath of God because we are sinners who will answer for our sins. And Jesus said, I will answer for you. The fourth great lesson, which we see in the horns, is that the altar means divine power to change. I want to conclude with a final warning. In Amos 3.14, it says this, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. The horns of the altar shall be cut off. And speaking of judgment, God says the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Israel had gone way off course. In fact, they had erected false altars. They were worshiping false gods. And God said, here's my response to that. The, the, the horns of the altar are going to be cut off. And here's symbolically what God was saying. There will be no place of refuge for you. There will be no place you can flee to to escape my wrath. Here's the lesson for us, folks. We don't always know when it is, but there does come a time when God's patience runs out. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes a judgment. For all of us, there is a death that is appointed. And for all of us, there will come a time for us individually that the horns of the altar have been cut off. There will come a time when the grace and the mercy and the patience of God has been exhausted and God said there will be no more refuge for you. This morning, if you are here and God is dealing with your heart, you need to understand something. It's not too late for you. It's not. But there does come a time. None of us know when that time is, but there comes a time when God says enough is enough. Do not wait until it's too late to grab the horns of the altar. Run to Jesus Christ now. Grab hold of Him and be firm. Do whatever it takes to grab a hold of Jesus. That's all you really got to do is get to Him. It really is that simple. It's public. It's obvious. There's power at the cross.